The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Obama administration was at pains to try to establish that with the policy guidance, there wasn't really much of a gap between our law of armed conflict model and their international human rights law model. And one place where that would seem to be hard to establish would be with respect to whether or not you're allowed to use force when when the target is not on the verge of attacking someone. In the human rights law model, you need that strict temporal eminence. The use of the policy language continuing imminent threat makes it sound like that window has been closed. But as I explained the definition in, in actual practice, there really is still quite a gap there. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 21st, 2022. Recently, Charlie Savage of the New York Times reported that the Biden administration had finalized a new policy governing drone strikes used in counterterrorism operations outside war zones. The policy tightens up rules established under the Trump administration, which themselves replaced an earlier guidance set out by President Obama. President Biden's policy is the latest effort to calibrate America's use of force in a 21st century conflict outside the traditional battlefield. To talk through Charlie's reporting, I sat down with him and Lawfare co-founder Bobby Chesney, who has closely observed this area of U.S. law and policy. We discussed how U.S. counterterrorism operations have changed in recent years, how Biden's approach compares to the Trump and Obama policies before it, and the significance of these changes for U.S. counterterrorism efforts going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 21st. The Biden administration's new policy on drone strikes. Charlie, I wanted to turn to you to start off. You reported recently in the New York Times that the Biden administration has issued a classified new policy governing rules on drone strikes outside war zones. We're going to go into the details over the course of this show. But to start us off, can you just give us a sort of top line overview of your story? Certainly. When President Biden took office in January of 2021, uh, one of the first things that happened was his national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, issued a secret order, which we... I found out about in March and wrote about that pulled back on the targeting rules that President Trump had followed or had issued for the four years he was in office, uh, a fairly permissive set of targeting rules. And the idea was going forward, there was going to be a big review of what this policy should be by the new Biden team and temporarily requests for strikes outside of conventional war zones would have to go through the White House. They thought that review was going to take about two months, and it took them until now uh, to actually get it done, or about three weeks ago now, I think. Obviously, a lot happened in the world. Afghanistan fell apart. Russia invaded Ukraine and so forth. But what we now have is the third iteration of uh, rules for not just drone strikes, but also commando raids in the counterterrorism context outside of conventional war zones. And at this point, the United States government considers only one place on the planet to be a conventional war zone where the U.S. is operating, at least, and that is Syria and Iraq, where there's still mop-up operations against the remnants of ISIS going on. 
And so that means this is going to govern strikes in places that include Afghanistan, Yemen, tribal Pakistan, perhaps most importantly right now, Somalia, uh, Libya, if that ever heats up again. And the, the thrust of it is, with the exception of collective or self-defense and collective self-defense of the U.S. or partner forces, which are exempt from this policy, if the United States uh, military or CIA wants to attack a terrorist suspect, most likely with drones, in theory, with a commando raid to capture, uh, they have to get permission from President Biden himself first. There has to be near certainty that this person is, poses a, quote, continuing and imminent threat to Americans, not just American interests, but Americans. And the person has to be part of an approved uh, group for targeting. That would mean something like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Al-Shabaab. And that once Biden has signed off on that, uh, in theory, the if they ever locate this person, they do not have to go back to the White House for permission to fire, but they still have to obey certain other rules, which include, perhaps most importantly, near certainty that no civilians will be killed or injured as a byproduct of the strike. So the, the takeaway is it is a return to the more centralized control of out-of-war theater targeting decisions in the counterterrorism context that was a hallmark of the late Obama era, the second term of Obama at least, and a move away from the more permissive system, which I'm sure we'll get into over the course of this podcast, that was in play under the Trump years. Thank you. So yeah, there's there's a ton there and I want to dive into the details. Before we do though, Bobby, I want to turn to you for one, I think, important piece of, of scene setting. So one crucial thing that listeners should understand is that these are policies that are layered on top of the legal framework that the United States is using for these operations abroad. They're sort of additional constraints that the government does not consider to be required by law, but is choosing to adopt. Uh, Bobby, I know that uh, a lot of people uh, have gotten entangled in this distinction before. So can you just walk us through that to make sure that listeners are, are clear on what exactly this does and doesn't do? Absolutely. And you're, you're totally right. This is all about policy constraint layered in on top of the legal framework, such as it is. And one thing that's really remarkable is that we've had more or less the same underlying legal position in the executive branch from September 2001 until October 2022. It's continuing really unchanged in most significant ways. So what is that framework? And then how does it relate to this this new PPM? By the way, a little, a little note on the acronym. So under Obama, it was the PPG. Under Trump, it was the PSP. Now under Biden, it's the PPM. So do Why can't that. they make up their minds? It's driving me crazy. Branding. It, but, you know, national security memoranda, often every president wants to have their own little acronym. I guess it's part of the joy of, it's right there with redecorating the Oval Office, perhaps. Um, so on the legal framework, it's, it starts, of course, with the AUMF of 2001. That's the Authorization for Use of Military Force, which was the, uh, the original conferral of authority by Congress on the executive branch to use all necessary and appropriate military force. And it was, you know, it was framed famously in a way that was clearly read to refer to al-Qaeda and the Taliban at the time. And then over the years um, was... Uh, extended in its understanding to encompass groups that were associated with them. And that that picked up both the al-Qaeda franchises, even the ones that broke with al-Qaeda, like the Islamic State, and within Afghanistan in particular, it picked up a lot of entities that were, were not necessarily uh, properly thought of as the Afghan Taliban themselves. So anyways, you have this sort of uh, statutory authority that's in place here. But the, the important thing to understand about that is that's really the answer from the domestic U.S. law perspective to the question of if Congress needs to authorize this, has it done so? And the answer is um, people debate about whether it was necessary, but it certainly has done so. It doesn't tell you anything about the international law dimension. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. And it's where some more of the controversy lies. And the idea is that the Bush administration determined very early on that a state of armed conflict existed with Al Qaeda and, and these other entities that it did not have geographic scope as such. And that's a hotly contested, both of those are hotly contested points. Areas specifically like Afghanistan in, in the earlier days where it was clearly an ongoing armed conflict, 
there was widespread agreement that the law of armed conflict applied there. But the U.S. position was, strictly speaking, if we encountered al-Qaeda members elsewhere, the, the war would go wherever they went. And which raised the question, did the United States claim it could just go to war anywhere in the world? Well, no, that's what the UN Charter rules and the USAID Bellum rules are for, is to control geographically where you go. That that was the US position. And so that you have this whole cluster of issues, many different points of controversy. Those of us who've been in this game for a couple of decades now are, are all real familiar with these debates. The policy guidance framework or this model, there's versions of this are perfectly common. So if you think back to some of the, the headier days in Afghanistan where there were substantial U.S. ground and, and air presence, lots of combat operations, you would often hear at, at certain points in time about policy constraints limiting night raids, for example. So I, I offer that as an example of this idea that it, it's common both in the military setting to use the rules of engagement to, to do things for strategic or operational or even maybe tactical reasons, to, to do to tie your hands a little bit more than the law of armed conflict would, to constrain your operation for good sound reasons. What was interesting about the Obama administration's second term presidential policy guidance or PPG document was the comprehensiveness and the, the sort of the sense that this was an attempt to take into account all the lessons of many years of, of controversy and debate about using force in the less active areas, the places where we were using lethal force from time to time, but it wasn't like Afghanistan where we had a big boots on the ground presence. And and trying to come up with a model where we could show in detail how the policy framework we were using produced an ultimate set of results, the administration then argued, that was pretty comparable, perhaps, to what was argued by those who claimed that the law of armed conflict didn't apply in those circumstances to begin with. And here I'll cite John Brennan, as the president's counterterrorism advisor back in the day, given a speech at Harvard Law when he specifically said, look, if you take into account how we impose policy constraints, we're really not that far apart from those who criticize our legal framework. And, and that was, you know, not everyone was persuaded by this, to say the least. But that's the way it all kind of fits together. So when we hear things about near certainty of no collateral damage, that obviously is a far, far higher standard than what the law of armed conflict if really applicable, would uh, would permit under the rules of proportionality. Same thing with the idea that if capture is feasible, you're not supposed to use lethal force under this policy framework. Well, that's not the law of armed conflict model. So that those are the ways that those two pieces work together. So I am told that the pol- the new policy, the Biden policy, explicitly says, you know, these targeting operations and, and capture operations, if there are any, will be taken out in consistent with domestic and international law, but it doesn't go into the details. And so, you know, the the shorter version of what Bobby was getting at was there's a lot of controversy on domestic law about whether the 2001 AUMF has been stretched beyond the breaking point. It's being used against groups that didn't exist on 9-11 and had nothing to do with 9-11. It's it's being used in countries and parts of the world that have far away from Afghanistan, which was what Congress was thinking about when it passed it. When the executive branch does this, Congress acquiesces. They keep talking about changing the AUMF, and they don't, and they keep funding U.S. operations. And so the sort of stretching like Gumby of the AUMF continues. This policy passes over that without without further discussion. As a matter of international law, the, the real sticking point is using force on another country's sovereign territory without its consent. Right now, the government of Somalia, for example, is full two thumbs up for us to be targeting al-Shabaab on its territory. So there's no problem in international law there. But uh, what, what do you do about a place like now Afghanistan, where, you know, under President Karzai or President Ghani, they, they wanted the U.S. there. Uh, but under Taliban rule, they, they surely don't. We don't recognize them as a government. Is there a government that can, at this point that even can consent? The U.S. has advanced a disputed claim that when a country is unwilling or unable to suppress a terrorist threat emanating from its soil is allowed by international law as a matter of self-defense for a country to carry use force on its soil. And I'm sure the U.S. government will continue to take that position. This policy, again, passes over without discussion whether or not that's legitimate or the fact that some people dispute it. 
So you've both given us a, a bit of an overview of this Obama guidance, the the PPG. Before we dive more into the details of the Biden memorandum, I do want to make sure that we sort of set out how things changed between Obama and Trump so that we can understand how, how they've changed again. Charlie, would you be able to just give a quick overview of what the Trump administration did when it came into office and, and how things sort of shifted between Obama and Trump? Yes. So starting in 2013 with Obama's PPG, strikes outside of what they called areas of active hostilities, war zones, conventional war zones, had to go through a very centralized review process, not unlike what we have now, uh, again, under Biden, where the agencies that wanted to target individuals, if they were ever to locate them, had to make the case in the interagency process, ultimately overseen by the president. Uh, uh, or his National Security Council to get that standing authority. And when the Trump administration came in, they took a look at that. The military in particular had been chafing against those rules as too restrictive. There were too many opportunities that were going by in their opinion. Uh, and to replace it with the PSP, under which it was a, the White House would set broad rules for particular countries, for lethal operations within particular countries, and then delegate the authority to the commanders in the field about who to strike and whether to take a strike, so long as those general principles were met. So they had country plans. There was a country plan for Libya or a country plan for Somalia, a country plan for Yemen, etc. And these would say things like, you have to have near certainty, there'll be no women or children killed, Maybe there needs to be only reasonable certainty that no military-maged men in the strike zone are not also militants, et cetera. And the person that the target has to be a member of the enemy group, uh, but it may not have restrictions at the level of that individual poses a threat uh, to the United States persons as, you know, based on what they specifically are doing, more status-based targeting. And so that widened the aperture in each country plan was a little bit different, but that widened the aperture uh, uh, of what kind of strikes could be taken out, uh, carried out by the military or the CIA within the countries that they were operating for which these plans existed and pushed out to some extent responsibility and control to the operators. So that was the, the system that was temporarily suspended when Biden took office while they undertook this review. And now it has been replaced again with a more centralized control of these decisions. I think this question of who decides is so interesting and so important because it's it's all well and good to have the various, you know, the variables about uh, whether capture is feasible, what your, your uh, risk tolerance is on collateral damage and all the rest. But depending on who actually gets to make that decision, and maybe more to the point, which set of people have a chance to have voice in the matter before the decider makes that decision. That is to say, whether it's an interagency process or entirely a process within either CIA or DOD, that's kind of what's at stake here from one point of view. Now, another point of view is, and if we go back to the Trump administration, this was pretty salient at the time. There's also the question of whether the White House, on one hand, would be drawing in too much power to itself, sort of a, you know, kind of shades of LBJ at the White House picking targets, uh, or instead is the White House trying to push away accountability so that the executive branch, so that the White House would be in a position to criticize something that went wrong. And the reason I mentioned that last thing is very early in the Trump administration, um, and Charlie, I think you reported on this, there was an episode uh, at ground forces raid special operators in Yemen. It went badly. And there was, uh, perhaps not surprisingly from Donald Trump, there was some rather uh, unbecoming criticism from the president of what went on there, kind of illustrating that when when he pushed the decisions away from himself, the good story you could tell is, well, he's, he's trying not to micromanage remotely from the White House. The bad story would be, well, he's trying to create a situation where he can uh, criticize if he wants to and decides he needs to. Or, or right, right, to put a finer point on it, he takes credit for the good stuff that happens and blame throws the military under the bus for the bad stuff that happens. And accountability means whoever the decider is needs to eat both. 
That's right. That that's that's exactly how that initial early episode in Yemen seemed to unfold. And then to come back around to the thing I originally said, the interagency chance for you know, state and and others to weigh in on what's been proposed either by DOD or CIA. Now that's a, that's a real serious policy choice. Are you going to keep the decision making entirely within the action organization, or are you going to give other people a voice? I'm actually curious, Charlie. You may know the answer to this. Whether under the Trump model, whether the uh, ambassador in country had the ability either to veto or have a say in the decisions, because as we'll talk about in a moment, of course, it's now clear what the rule will be on that point under Biden. Do you know how it was under Trump? I I don't think there's a single answer to that. One of the problems with Trump is that the, well, not problems, but complexities is because they had this broad set of rules, but then the structure was, we're going to have country plans that may deviate from these broad rules for each place where these things are happening regularly. Uh, We don't know because of a a freedom of information act lawsuit brought by us, the New York times and a separate one brought by the ACLU. We've seen a redacted version now the the Trump rules, but we haven't seen the country plans. And the reporting is that there were a lot of deviations from the official rules in those country plans. So whether they say the chief of mission in a country in, you know, to Somalia or to Pakistan has to be consulted, has has to con- concur, if, unless it's an exigent circumstance, and whether that's different in country A than B, I, I just do not have my hands around enough to say definitively what it was. So to touch on this this question of accountability, I think is really interesting and important, and it gets to what I think is is maybe sort of an uncomfortable but important aspect of this, which has to do with the sort of moral self-presentation of the various presidents here. So Obama, I think, was very out front in not only designing this PPG that really put the White House at the center of the process, uh, but also, you know, publicly accepting responsibility. He would go out there and give speeches and remarks about how he took this process really seriously and that the deaths weighed on him. Trump, on the other hand, was not only someone who we saw over the course of his presidency and the the example, uh, the Yemen raid that you both pointed to, was someone who sort of seemed to shy away from accountability when things went wrong. But he was also someone who, on the campaign trail in 2016, advocated for war crimes against suspected terrorists and seemed really unconcerned with the potential sort of collateral damage in these strikes. Now, I don't want to say that uh, his administration's PSP was 100% a reflection of that because it it was, you know, it, it was a serious policy document. But I do think that th- that gets to something important in how we understand these things. You know, if, if you're a person who sees a headline saying Trump loosens targeting guidelines, you might say, oh, well, you know, there he goes. He promised to kill the terrorists' families. On the other hand, Bobby, I know you you wrote about for Lawfare at the time that there are actually, you know, serious policy questions here, as you've pointed to, about the extent to which the White House should be the central decision maker here, to what extent these guidelines should be loosened or tightened. To what extent can we understand these decisions as reflecting sort of the moral weight that these particular presidents place on these issues? And or, you know, is, is that kind of a red herring? Trump derangement syndrome, you might call it. Uh, and and we should really be thinking about these as sort of dry policy questions. Bobby, I want to turn to you first, but Charlie, I'm curious for your thoughts too. Sure. So one thing that's very interesting in the in the period when Trump was elected and then right around the inauguration at Lawfare, we did a lot of posts speculating about what might change on national security, legal and policy fronts. I think at one point I wrote something that kind of listed a whole series of of orders and memoranda that probably would go by the wayside. In fact, I'm, I'm reasonably sure I said, well, clearly the PPG is toast. They're just going to repeal that. Um, I mean, maybe there'll be some nuance to it. And, uh, you know, I was totally wrong about that. When when the Trump administration adopted the PSP in place of Obama's policies, yes, some of these things we've been talking about changed, especially the decentralization dimension. And as Charlie notes, that with a lot of com- complex variety from country to country, it is clear that in some ways there was some loosening from the relatively uniform and strict 
near certainty of no collateral damage rule. And we'll talk more about that in a minute because we need to talk about this idea of presumptions relating to military age men. But on the other hand, it was nothing like a wholesale abandonment. There was still, th- that was still a variable. It was just calibrated more forgivingly, but it wasn't abandoned. And it was still set at a higher level than the law of armed conflict would have permitted. And if I recall correctly, and Charlie, this might be reflected in some reporting maybe you and Eric did at one point, uh, I believe there was a strong sense that the, the Trump policy was actually the product of more or less the product of career people in the uh, National Security Council staff. And it bubbled up in a relatively conventional, relatively professional and traditional way. And yes, it reflected some of these uh, loosening elements we've talked about. But I think the, I think it's pretty fair to say it, w- it wasn't nearly as much the loosening as many of us just assumed would be the case. And frankly, kind of picking up the theme that Jack Goldsmith often articulated at this time, it was just as, as we often see, a lot of continuity masked with lots of political rhetoric about how the new team is very different. But in fact, what they were really doing on these kind of core counterterrorism things was following more or less along a set pathway that was itself the product of, well, at that point, uh, four presidential terms worth of experience out in the field. At least that's how it all seemed to me. Or three, at least. Biden is out at four now. Um, So I I would credit not just random career people for the seriousness of the Trump PSP document. I would credit Tom Bossert, who was a very serious person, but definitely a, a political appointee uh, who was Trump's first Homeland Security advisor uh, and oversaw that process uh, for how it turned out. And it was also, I think, notably not something the Trump administration, and maybe not coincidentally, it was not something the Trump administration announced. The fact of the PSP and what it said and how it changed things from the Obama rules uh, came out only through source reporting by myself and Eric Schmidt is who you're referring to. You said Eric, who I read a lot about counterterrorism policy with. Uh, and the Trump administration actually never, ne- not only never issued it, they never issued a statement saying they'd done it. And when they later fought this Freedom of Information Act, they tried to glomar it, say they could neither confirm nor deny there even was such a document, which ultimately failed. So this was not a thing that Trump himself was trying to trumpet, and that may be why it was serious. And I think that part of the reason for that gets into something important here that also reflects a little bit of what Quinta was getting at about Obama sort of being very much out front, making a show of wringing his hands and taking responsibility and identifying the dilemmas in public speeches that were in play here, which is that the counterterrorism threat and, or the context has evolved a lot over the last 15 years. And when Obama took office and in his first term, drone strikes were really starting to take off from the end of the Bush administration, especially in tribal Pakistan. And drone strikes outside of recognized war zones, first Pakistan and then Yemen primarily, were frequent and ferocious. And I mean, we're talking about hundreds a year. And when you're, there's that many strikes, there's going to be mistakes. And the CIA was allowed to do signature strikes. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a minute, which is in there. Therefore, there were more civilian casualties and the reports of wedding parties and the like, village elder meetings that were mistakenly targeted with all kinds of civilian deaths and photographs were coming out and parliamentary inquiries were happening. And so it was a hot issue. And that is why Obama sort of couldn't not address it publicly. But then in the second term of Obama, kind of right after his policy announcement to tighten the rules on these things, which may not have had a huge impact on what was going to happen anyway, because what happens right after that is ISIS happens. And the jihadi threat environment shifts dramatically to the caliphate in Syria and Sunni Iraq, initially at least, and if all of the sort of jihadi energy goes there, it's a giant magnet sucking up jihadi-minded individuals from around the world who flock to ISIS and join the caliphate and then take part in the war against ISIS, which is not governed by these rules because it is a conventional war. 
It is an area of active hostilities and under Obama throughout the Trump years and even now under Biden. And that's where the bad guys were. And that's where the drone strikes were, for the most part, targeting them. And so as a result, the, the, the frequency of these kinds of strikes drops outside of war zones because that's not where the activity is. Uh, and you know, as I mentioned in the story about these new plans, you, there hasn't been a strike that we know of in Pakistan since 2018. The last strike that we know of in Yemen was 2020. Obviously, there was now that Afghanistan is no longer a war zone because the U.S. pulled out. There was the very high profile strike against that killed Ayman Zawahri earlier this year. Uh, but that's it so far for Afghanistan with the Somalia as an outlier where there's actually still been quite a lot of activity. But that it also kind of call, that that that's the context in which Trump is not talking about these policies and, and Biden isn't putting this out either. To some extent, it's because. For a while here, this stuff has been a sideshow. And Trump certainly was out there bragging about bombing ISIS into smithereens and, you know, taking credit for the crushing of the caliphate, uh, which resulted in quite a lot of civilian casualties along the way. But it wasn't governed by these kinds of rules. And it wasn't, didn't raise the same kind of weird 21st century rules situations we have of places that are not war zones and suddenly somebody you know, the U.S. fires a missile at somebody and things are blowing up and people are dying kind of out of the blue when it wasn't a battle before or after. And, you know, what should the rules be governing that situation? Now, I think, though, that these rules, that that was a temporary situation uh, caused by the, the, the idiosyncratic nature of the caliphate existing and now no longer existing. And that there's we're going to be shifting back and already are probably towards a more dispersed threat of different terrorist groups operating from ungoverned badlands in different parts of the world and maybe starting to develop plots against the West that will get on someone's radar screen and result in these kind of rules once again being the the primary way in which the U.S. is unleashing lethal violence in the name of counterterrorism in places around the world. And so I think this is very important, but I think that context of the years-long diversion towards ISIS in Syria, it partially explains the political, the lower political profile of this stuff at the moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 
15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Uh, let me jump in real quick on that because I'm so fascinated, Charlie, by what you were just saying about the gradual, what we might call the reverting to the mean with the Islamic State situation slowly unwinding and, and becoming less central. And one thing that will make it different, even if even if it, I think you're right descriptively that the threat will revert back to more of the, the smaller non-overt territory holding situations that arise around the world. But now that we're out of Afghanistan and we're we're not in Iraq and Syria in the way that we were before. The uh, the infrastructure of strikes and the infrastructure, both for intelligence purposes, for for both human sourcing, for for persistent stare surveillance by by drones, and just being able to to launch and project lethal force relatively easily into a nearby area. We've we've mostly not got that anymore. At least we don't have anything like what we had before, especially when we were in Afghanistan. So when I think about, for example, the Fatah region of, of Pakistan, were there to be a felt need to project force more recurringly like we used to before, I guess, 2018, as you say, it's not that it can, I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but it definitely couldn't be done as easily. Um, not, and, and the Zawahiri example in, in Kabul is, is sort of a, very much one of those exceptions proving the rule. Obviously, the, the stakes there were so different. The, the occasion for marshalling our capabilities so different. So as, as the United States has sort of gradually and quietly, sometimes not so quietly, other times, pulled back from forward deployment in ways that sustained these intelligence and strike cycle operations, we, we just won't, I think, be quite able to do anything like what we were doing at any of the more high-paced periods before. Um, and then the other thing I want to mention is we've also, perhaps in recognition of all this, we've put so much effort over the years into trying to build the capacity to work, as they say, by, with, and through partner entities. And then we usually think of that as as just the local forces, but sometimes it really is with, with allies who take responsibility for an area. And I'm thinking here of the French uh, in Africa in particular. I think some amount of pressure to carry out strikes 
left us and went to them and they're working with local partners over recent years. And, and, and in Somalia, it's also an interesting case too, right? Where they're, I guess for the Trump administration, it was at least for a time, I think, designated an area of active hostilities when, when our operations were high paced there. Charlie, you probably know the answer to this. I actually don't know what the current status of Somalia is on that framework and whether it's considered in or out. But obviously, uh, we do engage in a relatively high pace of lethal strikes there. And and we do so under a modality that I don't think we've mentioned on this show yet, but we should get into. And that is the idea of never mind all these rules. If you get a situation that counts as unit self-defense or collective self-defense of your partner's units. And I, I have the impression, mostly from your reporting, Charlie, that um, that has been the main rubric under which U.S. airstrikes in, in Somalia have been taking place in recent years. And that's a that's a pretty big exception, it turns out. Yes. Uh, so to, to pick up on a couple of things you were saying, one, uh, it is the case that, well, I I'm not sure that the area of active hostilities framework quite matters in the Trump years. That, that is a, a creature of the, unless I'm mistaken, of the Obama PPG and now the Biden PPM rules, but because Trump instead had these country plans, the, the, you know, the country plans, what mattered, whether or not it was, well, I guess they didn't have, I don't know if they had country plans for places like Syria or not. So let me just put a pin in that. In any case, Somalia was named an area of active hostilities that were exempt from the Obama rules in late 2016, sort of as Obama was preparing to hand off to Trump. And uh, it remain, it is not in area of active hostilities right now under the, the Biden administration. So these rules do apply there. But one of the exceptions to these rules is, as you said, self-defense strikes with the gigantic loophole of collective self-defense of partner forces, even when Americans are not at risk. That is the majority of strikes. I think there have been 10 strikes this year in Somalia. Only one was targeting a high value individual, a senior Shabab leader who had Biden had signed off on taking out if the military could find him. The other nine were all self-defense, collective self-defense strikes, which means they do not have to come back to the White House for permission. The idea is things are exigent. There's an immediate need to defend oneself or one's partners, and and, uh, there's no time. And so as long as various rules are met, they can launch a, a missile from a drone to do that. And the military is uh, known for stretching that authority first in from taking it from unit self-defense to collective self-defense in the first place, which they've sort of started doing and argued for and no one wanted to challenge them on in the end. Uh, and sometimes defining what uh, circumstances are sufficient to trigger that very broadly. Most famously in 2016 under the Obama administration, they targeted what they described as a graduation ceremony for new Shabab militants and killed over a hundred people in one blow who were graduating. <laughs> and therefore they were not in the act of shooting at somebody, but the, in the military argued, well, they were probably going to go do something bad next. So how imminent an imminent threat has to be is a place where there's going to be a lot of play in the joints. And the tension is that, if you're going to have control over targeting outside of war zones, some kind of policy control, this could be a loophole that allows military or CIA operators who want to just be more bombs away willy-nilly uh, to essentially become close air support and air force for Somali forces on the ground by just calling everything self-defense or defense of them and defining things broadly enough that they can without prioritizing resources, without focusing on just those elements of Shabab that intelligence indicates are involved in posing a personal threat to Americans or even American interests, simply have the status of being Shabab militants and they're in the gun sites, so shoot them. So this this cues up an issue that I wanted to make sure we touch on, which is the the role of determining uh, an individual to be a continuing and imminent threat. Bobby, can you speak to the role that that played uh, under Obama and Biden versus under Trump? So this this concept is is one of the most important areas in which people who aren't looking at it closely assume the policy means one thing. But if you understand the particulars of how these words are interpreted, 
it looks a little different. And and this this is an old, old concept. It's it's not even novel with the Obama administration. It, it goes way back in U.S. thinking about the use of force in self-defense. Um, and so the idea is simply this. When a normal person on the street is told something is imminent, that sounds like you're talking about a, a bit of a, a ticking window of time, right? That there's, there's strict temporal exigency. But there's another way of thinking about imminent threat that doesn't necessarily mean that something's about to happen. Rather, the idea would be that there's a person that you know is intending to carry out or you, you believe is intending to carry out, say, a, a suicide bombing. And this is a person who you, you don't know where they are normally. They've got good tradecraft. You can't find them. And so you have no idea when they might actually attack. You just know that they're in, inclined to do so, motivated, incapable, et cetera. And then a window of opportunity arises. The person is spotted and you know where they are for the time being as they move from one place to another. So th- this idea of a fleeting window of opportunity that intersects with the person who is probably in more literal terms, much better described as an ongoing threat as opposed to an imminent one, because you don't actually know whether there's actually any imminent harm afoot. But the imminence actually arises from the fleeting nature of the window of opportunity. It, that's what's imminent. You're, what's imminent is you're about to lose the person again. So it's the intersection of continuing threat with imminent uh, loss of opportunity that really best describes this situation. But for better or worse, administrations of both parties for a long time have have had this language continuing an imminent threat as a threshold for uh, who's targetable here. But what they really mean is an ongoing, a believed or perceived ongoing threat where there might be a fleeting window where you could strike them. At least that's my impression of it all. That That is really important as a distinction for both for the obvious reasons and then the not so obvious reasons. As I mentioned earlier, at least under the Obama administration, there was this desire to try to convince allies in particular that their preferred international law model for thinking about these non-combat zone strikes, which was the international human rights law model, the Obama administration was at pains to try to establish that with the policy guidance, there wasn't really much of a gap between our law of armed conflict model and their international human rights law model. And one place where that would seem to be hard to establish would be with respect to whether or not you're allowed to use force when when the target is not on the verge of attacking someone. In the human rights law model, you, you need that strict temporal eminence. The use of the policy language continuing imminent threat makes it sound like that window has been closed but as I explained the definition in, in actual practice, there really is still quite a gap there. And Charlie, am I correct that the the Trump PSP had gotten rid of that continuing imminent threat language, right? And so Biden is reinstating it from the Obama guidance. My sense is that the, yes, that the country plan model uh, in the PSP, the Trump era rules, said that as long as these other conditions were met, you know, protections against civilian casualties and so forth, that you could be targeted based on your membership in one of the approved groups on your, your status as a member of uh, the enemy force and was not focused on whether a particular target as an individual posed an, an, a threat uh, based on their senior leadership role, their plotting activities, their unique skills, something that made them more of a threat than your average rank and file person, that it was left up to the operators to decide whether it doesn't mean they were going to kill every rank and file foot soldier, but it just meant that the rules imposed by the White House were going to delegate that policymaking decision to the operators in the field about what was worth it and what wasn't worth it. So there are two aspects of this Biden guidance that I want to make sure that we do discuss. So one has to do with the standards for determining whether civilians are present uh, in the area and might be killed, um, whether it's a, a near certainty or reasonable certainty. And the other has to do with something that's called uh, signature strikes, which, as Charlie, as you, I think you mentioned, Biden does away with. So, Charlie, I want to turn it over to you first. Can you describe what the Biden approach to these questions of certainty and signature strikes are? And then, Bobby, I want to turn it over to you for your thoughts. So to start with the certainty of no civilian deaths, the Biden rules say before you pull the trigger, you, know, like you have someone who's approved for targeting, you've discovered where that person is, they're you know, in the car, moving down the highway or whatever, uh, but below the 
the drone, you have to have, the operators have to have near certainty that no civilians will be killed or injured before they can pull the trigger. And the Trump era rules also said that. So that doesn't sound like a change. But the, my reporting is that the country plans uh, that were sort of an overlay to the Trump era rules sometimes made systematic downward deviations from that rule for the purpose of adult males. And so there had to be near certainty that no women and children, civilians would be killed. But apparently in some places, there needed to be only reasonable certainty that no civilian adult men would be killed. And so if the question is like, if you see a guy you know is a terrorist and he's standing next to some other adult male who's holding a gun, like this is where it gets tricky. Like, what do you, what's the premise? Is that other guy probably also a terrorist because he's hanging out with this terrorist and is armed and so forth as the right age is male. And I don't have a granular understanding of where where the, this downward deviation from the supposed standard was systematically allowed and where it was not. But in any case, the Biden rules apparently have tightened that up and want there to be the same protections for adult men as there are for women or children. And this gets tricky, of course, when you don't have good on the ground intelligence. And so you're looking down through a camera, who are these people that we're, that we're seeing? And also, I think there is, it sounds all well and good, well, you know, near certainty is a higher standard than reasonable certainty. What that means, I, I guess there are factors that are come into play, but at some point it seems a little bit more art than science. And we had a demonstration of that just last month in Somalia because in the, that high value strike where they took out this, apparently this very senior longtime Shabab leader, they military assured everyone that there was reasonable certain near certainty no one else no civilians would be killed and AFRICOM put out a press release saying we killed this guy and no one else and then a couple days later it turned out they had killed a second person that he was in a car with another person and they think this is all reporting so i you know take it all the grain of salt they think that that person was in fact a shabab member so this was not a killing of a civilian situation but it uh, just another enemy killed in action. But it calls into question how there could possibly have been near certainty that no civilians would be killed if they did not realize a second human being was in the strike zone at, at all. And so um, what does that mean? And are they displaying fast and loose? Or do these standards even really mean anything? Or is it just something to talk about? Uh, so flagged for discussion. And the second question you asked was, what about signature strikes? So we've been talking about strikes where there is a particular person and they have thought about this person, they have a package on him, they have intelligence and they've decided he meets the standard of continuing an imminent threat, whatever that means. Uh, and so whether that's a good standard or not a good standard, whether this creates too much risk for civilians or not, aside, that's a, a system for thinking about only taking out particular individuals who really uh, merit it as individuals. The signature strikes are different. Signature strikes are the idea that we see below us a group of armed men, let's say, who for a variety of reasons look like they're probably part of the enemy. You know, they are at the compound that we know is a Al-Shabaab safe house or Al-Qaeda safe house. They are all have guns and they are moving from that compound towards a place where we have intelligence that there's going to be an attack. But we don't know their names. We don't know who they are as individuals. They just bear the signature, they bear the characteristics of people who are probably part of the enemy force. Uh, in a war zone, there'd be no problem pulling the trigger in that situation. Uh, but now we're not in a war zone there's, and things get trickier and so how high should the standards be? There was a lot of signature strikes uh, in, especially in Pakistan, especially by the CIA in the Obama era that, A, were very successful and sometimes turned out to kill high-level militants that the, at the time operators didn't even know were there. But they'd be, they were very unsuccessful where they misunderstood what they were looking at and they killed groups of civilians who were not at a terrorist planning meeting but were at a wedding or, or not at a terrorist planning meeting but were at a, a, a village meeting to discuss a chromite mining dispute at which maybe one or two uh, Taliban members were present, but just in their role as sort of local authorities, not in their role as terrorist plotters. Uh, and the backlash from those civilian, large-scale civilian casualty incidents was 
extreme and not good for not good morally, but also not good even on a pragmatic sense of trying to win hearts and minds and not make more people want to become terrorists against the United States. So the these rules, these Biden rules are contemplate only authority to target known specific individuals who have gone through this process, who've had their names submitted to the president. They, they do not confer standing authority for strikes in other circumstances, which in, would include signature strikes. That said, there is a exception, which is that the president can always make exceptions to these rules. And so if the military or the CIA were to think that there was some situation that really merits blowing up a compound full of people whose names are not known, they can, but they, they could do it, but they would have to come to Biden and get his sign off to do it. So it's not going to be something that happens willy nilly. Pakistan in the Obama era, and then actually into the through the Trump era too, it was a special situation. It was not a war zone. It was not a country that had consented to our, at least officially, but there's a lot of reporting that maybe they sort of did it behind the scenes and then complained about it publicly to strikes in the Fatah region, the, the ungoverned tribal regions. But it was right next to a war zone. There were troops on the ground across the border in Afghanistan, American troops. And there were lots of militants who would sort of hide in the mountains of Pakistan, cross the border, carry out an attack, go back again. And when Obama put in his rules in 2013 to tighten things up, uh, he exempted Pakistan because it was still basically one room over from the war zone. It still had a lot of the characteristics of a war zone in terms of a, a space where militants were operating across the border in what we consider an area of active hostilities. And so the, that's not a situation you see now in Pakistan. And I don't think that, that they're exempt from these Biden rules as a result. Thank you. That was really helpful. So, Bobby, I want to turn it over to you. I'm particularly curious what you made of this decision on signature strikes, especially because this this memo came out in, in context of a long-running conversation about civilian casualties in drone strikes, including some really incredible reporting by the New York Times and a, Pent- a separate Pentagon initiative to decrease civilian casualties. So I'm curious whether you you read this in conversation with those separate discussions. Um, and also, you know, whether this uh, end on signature strikes or end with exceptions, as Charlie has pointed out, is sustainable. Is it possible largely because uh, you know, there has been a decrease in strikes overall, um, or is this something that we think that the administration will really be able to stick with? So I think Charlie's account of, of how to think about signature, signature strikes is exactly right. I mean, if you think about a situation of full-scale armed conflict, Russia, Ukraine, um, when the Ukrainians identify what they think are maybe Russian units moving through the woods somewhere and they bring artillery down on them, that's signature strike. So the more conventional the conflict setting, the more of this you're going to see. It's it's the sort of normal way of thinking about using force in in real full-fledged wars. And as Charlie says, what what we're dealing with here is is an, a decreasing number of situations like that. And so it's just not as relevant. It makes a lot of sense on a model that's premised on the idea that you're making rules for areas that are not active hostilities. You would go ahead and turn off this option. But as Charlie says, it can be turned right back on if the circumstances change. Um, I'll also add that in a place like Somalia, as we noted earlier, the opportunity to invoke the collective self-defense of partner units in resulting airstrikes that look a lot like close air support um, suggests that in some sense, you'll, th- those are going to be strikes that that have the qualities of signature strikes in the sense that you're bringing in that air air power on units or on targets that you probably have no idea who the particular individuals are. You just know that they seem to be engaged in or threatening to engage with the partner unit forces. And as noted earlier, we might even have a very broad conception of how close to engaging them they are. So I'm not actually sure how much really turns on this, but it it does seem reasonable, at least as a theoretical matter for how you think about when you're going to use lethal force outside an area of active, active hostilities. Uh, going back to the near certainty versus reasonable certainty distinction, it is quite possible that not a great deal is going to turn on that. But I'm intrigued by Charlie's point about the uh, the realization post-strike that there was a second person in the car. I, I think there's it's important to distinguish 
the question of whether sufficient care and, and technology and capacity is brought to bear in figuring out who is on the scene, as opposed to the question of based on whatever information the commander has, based on the resources deployed to understand the scene, how do you characterize the people who were there? This accident, as I understand it, or this accident is the wrong word, this strike where there was a second person in the vehicle and they apparently didn't know it, it's more a problem of the former rather than, by definition, not a problem of the latter. They didn't know the person was there, so no one was making a judgment that it was or wasn't a proper person to categorize as as a legitimate target. It, it's pretty interesting when you think about not realizing a second person's in the car. I think we all have the impression uh, perhaps not always accurate impression that the United States just has a, a vast universe of high tech gear to know exactly what it is we're dealing with. And surely that would include knowing what, how many human beings are in a vehicle. I think this illustrates that that's just not always the case. So I want to close by talking about the the question of transparency and the public facing aspect of all of this. One of the really notable things, I think, about the Biden administration's approach to these kinds of operations is that there have been, you know, a, a really stark decrease in the number of drone strikes over the course of the administration. And yet that, you know, it's not something that the administration is trumpeting particularly. It's it's something that has been relatively quiet. And, you know, that the, the administration isn't necessarily trumpeting this new uh, policy either. Of course, Charlie, we we have your reporting. Um, but as you, you know, in your report, you weren't actually able to see uh, the, the document in question. Um, it is classified. What do we think about the way that the administration is handling this? Is there a kind of political benefit in having this go on, you know, a little bit out of the the public eye, what what should we make of this approach? Well, I definitely they definitely are doing it quietly, just as the Trump people did not announce or even concede that they had a new policy, uh, notwithstanding the fact that Eric Schmidt and I managed to basically drag the details out into the public. Here they concede they do have a new policy. They I was able to get a statement from the NSC acknowledging that this had happened and sort of discussing it at the 30,000 foot level. But they're not putting out the, the document. I'm like, you know, even even Obama didn't put out the document. He had to, he lost a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit for, to put it out. But they at least put out a, a fairly detailed press statement sort of describing it, uh, which they're not doing here. I think they should put it out. I filed a FOIA for it, and no one will be surprised when we, once the time is right, file a lawsuit to saying you got to put it out, or at least, you know, with proper redactions. That we've seen now the Obama version and the Trump version. So, what's the problem? But there's certainly a lot going on in the world. The administration is very interested in having people talking about what's going on in Ukraine, for example. This counterterrorism, in general, the counterterrorism stuff has has died down quite a bit. You know, even the Zawahiri strike got a day, uh, but it's, it's a the CT issue is much less salient as a topic of political discussion these days than it was ten years ago. That's probably a good thing because it reflects that terrorism in general, since is is not as scary an issue right now as it has been in years past, probably since the collapse of ISIS. Uh, it's just it's secondary issues now. And I, it's bad maybe for people like Bobby and me who are focused on CT policy, uh, but it's good for the world. And hopefully it lasts as long as, as long as it can. Sooner or later, something terrible will happen again and everyone will be focused on this once again. That's exactly right. We're in, from, from the perspective of guys like us, Charlie, we're sort of in this not an interregnum, but a little bit of a quiet period. Look, I think that the Biden administration, uh, obviously a lot of overlapping people with the Obama administration, including the president himself, the, the Obama administration tried very much to be public facing, um, lots of lots of speeches by lawyers, lots of speeches about the legal framework, lots of lots of revelation about the policy framework. Um, this reminds me of, of Ben's book with Ken Anderson, Speaking the Law, where it was basically taking 
a lot of Bush administration and Obama administration uh, officials' speeches and saying, look, you can kind of really understand the evolving thinking over time. And I think that the current team looks at how that went, especially in the Obama years, and thinks and, and thought they didn't get a lot of benefit from this, and yet there's a lot of offsetting risk. And here's what I mean by that, and I think this nicely tracks what Charlie just said. So first, from the point of view of those who are politically opposed to the current administration, drawing attention to pulling back on counterterrorism authorities, uh, obviously will be unattractive from that perspective. You're, you're kind of potentially giving them grist for their mill to criticize you as being you know, reckless with security or whatever the attack would be. Now, in the past, that would be plenty offset by, by the idea that you're getting benefit with your own base who really want to see you pulling back. Uh, but I think on one hand, um, as Charlie said, the, the attention has, has largely gone elsewhere, in, in part because the world is going elsewhere. And, and also, I think there's a little sense of appreciation that for the people who stu- still do really care about this, they're not going to be sufficiently impressed by these constraints. There will still be recognition in more sophisticated circles that the legal framework remains, that there's an armed conflict that has no geographic boundaries, et cetera. Guantanamo is still open. Strikes still occur, et cetera. And so from a, just a political calculus perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense just to, just to do what you feel like you need to do. Be just transparent enough, meaning call Charlie, just transparent enough so that you so it's not completely hidden, but try to do it without drawing attention to it. From a, from a policy perspective, uh, I think these things aren't disconnected. I think that there's a lot of history of the past 20 years of policy initiatives uh, getting so tangled up in the discourse about was this good, was this bad, that it sometimes became debilitating. And, um, you know, you could say that the Trump administration arguably reflected the same lesson, although I think there the the quietness about the PSP had as much or more to do with just that they got Trump to sign it. They were trying very hard not to draw any further attention uh, from him probably to this. So I guess at any given point in time, there's sort of an internal White House story about why things do or do not get the main attention. But uh, I, I think it's on the whole been pretty wise of the Biden administration to forego any formal talk about, well, we're basically stopping this policy. We're stopping that policy. They're just they're just doing less. They're quietly reinstating constraints and it's enabled them to do these things without generating any external friction or any significant external friction. The the downside, I suppose you would say, is it also makes it that much easier for the next administration to once again reverse course or or alter things. But I think that's true no matter what. I mean, the fact that uh, it's quiet or not quiet now doesn't change the ability of the next president to perhaps uh, reopen the aperture a bit. All right, let's leave it there. Charlie, Bobby, thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.